Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a team of cardiac surgeons explains what you and your loved ones need to know if you face cardiac surgery. We can now, in certain cases, do it on a beating heart, so we don't have to use the heart-lung machine. That affords quite a bit of advantages, especially neurologic advantages. A psychologist gives advice about how to talk to kids about tragedy. The most important thing for our kids is for them to know that as parents, we are the people they can come to for clarity, for answers to questions. An Onondaga County official goes over the basics of Medicare and shares some ways to save money on coverage. There's also a program through the Medicare office called Medicare Savings Program, where the state would pay the Medicare Part B premium. All that and a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk with a psychologist about how to help children deal with tragic events in the news. Then we'll get an overview of what's most important to know about Medicare. But first, a cardiac surgery team discusses treatment for the irregular heart rate known as atrial fibrillation. Heart disease is still the number one cause of death in the United States, and today we're going to talk about some of the surgical interventions that can save and improve people's lives. In the studio with me today are two cardiac surgeons from Upstate, Drs. Randall Green and Akil Sandhu. Thank you both for being here. Pleasure. Pleasure. So I know... Uh, Heart surgery, there have been a lot of changes and advances. Um, it's been offered since the 1960s. Correct. Can you tell me, kind of bring me up to speed on where we are now? Because when it started, it was a major undertaking. Several hours surgery, right? You know, heart surgery started in the um, late 50s, early 60s by accident for adults. Um, prior to that, it was just pediatric heart surgery that was being done. And How did it start by accident? Well, at the Cleveland Clinic, there was a cardiologist named Mason Soans, who was a big smoker. He used to smoke in the cath lab. He um, was doing a heart cath, and the fellows used to do the heart caths, and he was doing it on a, on a baby, and um, everybody avoided engaging the catheter into the left main coronary artery because they were afraid if anything happened, because that's main blood supply to the heart, the patient would die. And so inadvertently, without them recognizing it, the catheter got lodged in the left main, they injected the dye, and all of a sudden, nothing happened to the patient, but they could see the entire arterial tree. And that started the whole process. And then there was a surgeon, Rene Favalero, who did the first bypass um, uh, grafting using a piece of vein in an adult for a blockage in the coronary. Um, uh, from the aorta to beyond the blockage on the coronary artery. That's how adult coronary artery uh, surgery started. Wow, and it's just taken off from there. Correct. Wow, interesting. Well, um, these days you might not have to open a patient's chest to do the surgery, right? Right, so, um, you know, um, even, even today we still use the heart-lung machine quite a bit in, um, for... Um, uh, doing all kinds of heart operations, including um, bypass surgery. Um, but we've gotten to the point where we can now, in certain cases, do it on a beating heart, so we don't have to use the heart-lung machine. And um, that affords quite a bit of um, advantages, especially neurologic advantages, because, you know, sometimes the large artery in the, in the, in the body that comes out of the heart called the aorta gets calcified, and um, so that means it's stiffened. Yeah, it's like a concrete pipe with cholesterol and plaque, okay. and and if you manipulate that, that can sometimes break off and cause um, injury to organs like the brain. Um, so if you avoid manipulating it like you do it with a beating heart, then you reduce that a little bit. And um, you know, I've seen um, in personal experience that patients bounce back a little quicker um, 
because you avoid the pump run. Uh, so that there are some advantages to that. Um, going one step further, we can now do that with um, minimally invasive techniques, um, particularly using um, the Da Vinci robot. And um, with three little holes in your chest and a little incision underneath your breast, we can uh, do at least two uh, bypasses uh, to the front of the heart that way. Interesting. Well, I want to, you said the term, you know, beating heart surgery, and I, I have a vision of what that's like, but can you tell me more about how that works? Sure. Um, uh, so it's just as it sounds. We never stop the heart. Routinely, to, in order to do heart surgery, we want a still heart, and we have to arrest the heart and protect the heart uh, with the patient on the heart-lung machine in order to do that. Um, but in this case, we, we've developed methods in which we isolate a portion of the heart that we want to work on and um, keep that relatively still and let the heart do its job. Interesting. And you're able to suture and everything? Well. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. The, the alternative, Amber, uh, is using a cardiopulmonary bypass machine, as Dr. Sandu, Sandu stated initially. Um, that uh, device really permitted us to take the first cardiac surgery through to where we are right now in the different iterations of evolution of that device really has brought us to a point where we can do extremely complex surgical procedures on the heart. And, um, at, although there is an opportunity to use a stabilizing system and not use a cardiopulmonary bypass machine to do coronary bypass operations, um, some of the most complicated things we do still requires cardiopulmonary bypass in that, in that tool. Um, Many of the studies that look at performing on-pump versus off-pump coronary artery bypass grafting surgery have failed to reveal any real substantive benefit. I mean, we have, we have uh, uh, learned colleagues on both sides that have preferences as to using it or not using it to achieve uh, coronary bypass. Um, but at the same rate, it's it's a tool that the risk has gone down substantially. There were there was there was a great deal of conversation in the early 2000s about the consequences uh, to neurocognitive function being on a cardiopulmonary bypass machine, and that means that means uh, using that tool to artificially supply circulation and oxygenation to the body during the time that we have the heart stop to operate on it. That something was happening to patients in there. Uh, their uh, neurologic uh, function after being on a heart-lung machine was different. And the truth there is that none of those studies um, have ever come out revealing uh, time after time that there's any difference at all. So the point is, it's, it's a much safer tool that we use now than, than we originally used back, obviously, in the 60s and 70s. Most notably, the number of filters that we put on the machine to make sure that what's going back into the patient's body is just their blood with no platelet aggregates or fibrin aggregates or small uh, piece of material that can that can uh, get lodged in smaller circulations like the brain and cause these effects. So, so how do you decide if a patient if you're going to do an operation on pump or off, and does the patient have any say or or not? Uh, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, for me, I think um, you know the 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 decision to do it off pump really depends on the patient's condition. So there are patients that um, are much higher risk uh, for being on the heart-lung machine um, or cardiopulmonary bypass. Uh, for example, those patients with um, a very poor lung function um, that you don't want to use too much fluid uh, to um, oversaturate the lungs, and um, that would be a patient that I would definitely consider for off-pump surgery. Also, um, patients that you know before surgery, you're going to run into the problem with the calcified aorta, which we talked about before. Um, I, would, I would consider um, off-pump surgery in those cases. But remember, off-pump surgery is limited only to bypass grafting okay. and not to other types of heart surgeries like valve surgeries where we really do need um, cardiopulmonary bypass and um, uh, arresting the heart. I do think your question's a good one, then, Amber. I mean, Akila answers the question, I have a certain set of preferences um, in terms of patients that I see that I would use an off 
cardiopulmonary bypass technique versus using a heart-lung machine. But the question really is, you know, does a patient have a say in which technique uh, would be best for them? Interestingly, I do think that I have the same list of preferences where I may or may not use it. My list of preferences where I would not use it is an extremely small list. I pretty much use the heart-lung machine on every single patient. Um, but it, you know, now that I sit back and think about, do I have that conversation with the patient to disclose that there are um, possibilities of not using the heart-lung machine, I, I, I suppose that I don't really have that conversation as much because you know, when it comes down to having something like heart, heart surgery, any form of heart surgery, you really wanna make sure the practitioner you've chosen is using the tools and the team and the institution that they think will provide the best outcome for the patient. And so it's it's very much, I guess now that I think about it, implied in the conversation that I have chosen to use the heart-lung machine without actually giving the patient a choice. So maybe I'll start doing things differently on Monday. <laughs> no, I think that, you know, I would echo what you're saying, Randy. Um, and I think it's more a, a tool than an actual um, um, necessary conversation. For example, you know, it's it's something in the armamentarium that we could use to better um, treat our patients. So we don't go into the details of exactly how we do the procedure, even in a regular procedure that now we're going to, you know, do this and then we're going to do that and then you'll be on the heart-lung machine and then we're going to take you off and then we're going to start the heart and then we're going to, you know, all that. Right. We don't go into those details when we talk to patients. Right. About well, mo the majority of your patients are correct. not cardiac and then, and then surgeons, this is so just they're going to come Right, in. and so this is just one of those um, uh, detailed uh, part of that yeah. that um, uh, procedure that we make those decisions often on the fly. All right. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Drs. Randall Green and Akil Sandhu. They're cardiac surgeons here at Upstate. Uh, and Dr. Green, I wanted to ask uh, if you can tell us what you're doing for patients with atrial fibrillation. What right. are some of the options they have here at Upstate these days? Right. Well, uh, a little history. So atrial fibrillation affects just a great number of people that you know we see around town every single day. And, and so that's an irregular rhythm. Right. Rhythm. Right. So typically we we run around in what's called a normal sinus rhythm at about 80 beats a minute. Um, atrial fibrillation is an irregular heart rhythm that originates in our atrium and uh, has circuits uh, that are re-enter over and over to create a faster heart rate that is irregular and does not have the coordination of the top and bottom chamber of the heart. Um, the way to stop that, uh, m most frequently patients are treated with um, medications that either control the rate or the rhythm. Um, sometimes patients who have persistent atrial fibrillation and are symptomatic can undergo a catheter-based procedure to treat that irregular rhythm. That's done by a cardiologist called an electrophysiologist. Okay. And some patients who have highly symptomatic and resistant forms of atrial fibrillation uh, may be candidates for uh, a, a surgical procedure to treat the atrial fibrillation. And a few years ago, several years ago now, I uh, went out and learned a surgical technique that had a very high likelihood of getting patients back into atrial fibrillation and it worked great. The problem was it was highly morbid. It meant requ it required general anesthesia. We had to take we had to make incisions in both the right and left chest under general anesthesia and, and use these special uh, tools to work behind the heart and create create burns in the heart, believe it or not, with radio frequency energy to block these electrical circuits from going around and around to achieve a high rate of conversion back to a regular rhythm. That I did for years here in town, and it was, again, very effective, but the patients really suffered to get through it. So about a year and a half ago, I learned of a procedure called the convergent procedure that uh, allows us to make just a small incision below the uh, midline, uh, just in the upper portion of the abdomen. and that's the, the stomach. Uh, right, okay. right, right below the chest, and access the sac around the heart. And we introduce a catheter through that little incision into the sac around the heart, and we're able to create a series of, um, uh, of injury uh, 
a series of injuries to the back of the heart that prevent these electrical rhythms from going around and around. The reason it's called the convergent procedure, though, is not is because we're working in conjunction with an electrophysiologist. So the cardiac surgeon will do the surgical portion of the procedure, creating a set of blockages on the back of the heart, and the patient goes right into the electrophysiology lab where the electrophysiologist cardiologist performs a catheter-based procedure to treat the remaining portions of the left atrium where these rhythms can uh, re-enter with a catheter. So again, it's a way to draw on the expertise of a cardiac surgeon, accessing a part of the heart that the cardiologist finds difficult, and then uh, relying on the cardiologist's ability to access the part of the heart that the cardiac surgeon can't get to and allow those two uh, professionals to merge their expertise to create a high level of of conversion to a regular rhythm for patients. How quickly does a patient see a difference? Many of them see it immediately. Immediately. Uh, The patients can have periods where they go into and out of atrial fibrillation for up to a year. And we really don't call it a procedural success until one year comes around and the patient's in a normal rhythm. Tell me which type of patient this um, surgical procedure would be appropriate for. Not everyone that has AFib needs this, right? Right. So. So most of the time the patients that we're operating on have been treated medically for a year or two and medical treatment has been unsuccessful. They've undergone at least one, sometimes as many as four or five catheter-based procedures to treat the atrial fibrillation and yet remain highly symptomatic. And so these are patients who are working age people in our community that can't go to work, they can't uh, carry on their activities of daily living and are really searching for a solution to a, to a otherwise resistant problem. Well, thank you so much. That's good information. I'm, I'm glad that patients have that um, available here in Syracuse. Um, my guests have been cardiac surgeons Dr. Randall Green and Akil Sandhu. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, helping children deal with tragic news. University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. When bad things happen, such as terrorist incidents or mass shootings, parents can have a tough time deciding how or whether to share the information with children. Here to talk about this is psychologist Wendy Gordon, a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Upstate. Welcome. Good morning. Uh, do you have any guidelines for what to say to children based on their age when something bad happens? I think we always have to consider developmental level when we're talking to our children. Um, Young kids have limited sense of time, limited to no ability to abstract. So I think the briefer and the most straightforward um, conversations to young kids um, are much more helpful than a lot of details which they're not going to understand. For older children who are not only um, within the home but also outside with peers in social situations, they're going to be hearing a lot of information that you don't have control over. I think the opportunity to say to your child, what are you feeling about what's going on? What have you heard? What are you worried about? What are your friends saying? about what went on gives an opportunity to do several things. One, to open up the opportunity for conversation with your children and also to correct any misinformation or inaccuracies that they may be hearing from their general community or their, or their peers. Is it, um, is it bad or detrimental for children to see their parents reacting Um, crying or shouting or reacting in some way to what's happened? I think that it's important that parents stay as calm as possible around their children, but 
parents are human also, and the fact is that if parents are worried, if parents are upset, it is certainly not a bad, unhealthy thing for children to see within limits uh, parents expressing those same feelings. It normalizes them. It gives the kids permission to have whatever feelings they have as well. So I think that uh, it's important for us as parents to remember that children look to their parents for reassurance. So if you have a parent who is really emotionally distraught, they need to find ways to discuss their own emotions with peers or community partners um, before they speak to their kids. If you think of it, if you um, are extremely upset and agitated as an adult, your child's going to pick up those feelings regardless of the words you may use. It gets to more of um, they do what they see, not what you tell them. They react to the behavior. So I think that parents saying, it is sad, I'm very sad about what happened. It is a little bit scary. Or having tears, um, being upset, but again within limits, not to the extremes, because what your child sees in terms of your reaction is going to go a long way to what their response and what their stress levels are going to be. Right. And sadly, it seems like we see a lot of these situations, mm -hmm. the mass shootings and things happening. Um, Unfortunately, that's very true. So for parents, you know, th their duty to sort of help their kids process these violent acts, um, it's tricky when the parents are also struggling to process what all, what's going on and what this means. So you mentioned maybe other community resources for help, um, the schools, teachers, other community. Yes, teachers um, can be a great resource if we keep a couple things in mind. Teachers are also adults who are human and having their own reactions. But one of the things that can be very helpful for children, and frankly, I think it's also helpful for most adults, is to the extent reasonable and possible to maintain normal routines. And for kids, that means going to school, having their regular activities as much as possible and within the school the teachers provide another avenue to provide general information but more also to continue the the normal day the structure of the school program which doesn't mean that there's not flexibility in having some time for discussion if that seems to be necessary being mindful in the classroom about individual children's reactions. Um, stress affects learning, so the more stressed a child is, the more problems they're going to have learning. If they're stressed for other situations not related to the particular event um, that's affected the community or the world, then their baseline for reacting is going to be higher than a child who's generally doing well. Um, and I think that um, the schools also need to be aware that kids who may suddenly begin acting out um, are not trying to, to push their buttons, to give them a hard time, to be difficult when everybody is having a hard time anyway. Kids react um, to anxiety and fear um, the same way that grown-ups do. Sometimes they get withdrawn, sometimes they act out. So trying to be aware of um, what's going on within the school community, but again, keeping the routines. So with keeping the routines, um, that's important for children. Is that important for adults as well? I feel it's very important most of the time um, if we focus on the stressful event, the traumatic event, to the exclusion of everything else that's normal in our world, there's a real tendency to begin to feel like everything is unsafe, to catastrophize um, and to generalize from some bad events to everything feeling tremendously unsafe. One of the things that normal routines provide, whether it's school for children um, or work or general day-to-day -day activities for adults, is a chance to get 
redirect it into your normal routine activities. It provides a distraction um, and allows you, um, in most cases, to be able to focus on the normal part of your life for at least a good chunk of the day. Obviously, nobody is unaffected by trauma, if you're talking about community trauma, global trauma. Um, but one of the things that causes difficulties for adults and is absolutely problematical for children is this 24-7 news cycle of watching the same tragedy repeated over and over and over again. For very young children, going back to your question about developmental issues, one of the things that we know is after the the tragedy of 9-11, the news was showing 24-7, the two planes were crashing into the two towers in the World Trade Center. As adults, older kids had an ability to understand that this was a replay of a single event. Young kids had the very clear impression, which makes sense given where they are in their um, cognitive understanding, that planes were repeatedly crashing into other buildings and the whole, um, their whole understanding was that every building all day was being attacked by separate planes. So you know, we, we can't and we probably shouldn't in most cases prevent um, any awareness. I mean, we have a fantasy of bubble wrapping our kids sometimes and protecting them from, from life. And as much as it's an understandable concept, it's not realistic. Um, but putting some limits on um, what young children see at all and how much of the constant repetition um, and sometimes media hysteria uh, about a situation that in and of itself is bad enough, um, the, the older kids and the adults themselves are exposed to. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate psychologist Wendy Gordon. Um, let me ask you this. Is there a risk in sheltering your child too much? You mentioned, like, we want to bubble wrap mm-hmm. them, protect them. Um, but, you know, keeping them away from the television, maybe not talking about the shooting in the church or whatever, um, it, it, you know, they could be talking with friends and hear about it and not and then not be, you know, aware. Does that catch them off guard? Is Precisely. That- exactly. That's why the bubble wrap fantasy never works, because uh-huh. um, there's there's two problems with that. One, the one that you mentioned that you will um, there's no way that at some point the children are not going to hear some conversation, whether it's their own parents talking when they think their children are asleep, whether it's a conversation the adults are having with other adults, and certainly when kids go to school, even in preschool and kindergarten, other kids will have some information, accurate or not. There are adults in those school situations that will be engaged in some discussions. So I think the most important thing for our kids is for them to know that as parents, we are the people they can come to for clarity, for answers to questions, that not only do we reassure them that while what happened was a very, very sad thing, that you are there to keep them as safe as possible, that you can talk, they can speak with you about anything that they like, you will do your best to answer questions. So there really needs to be a middle ground. And so even something like, you know, when you go to school, you may hear people talking about um, a really awful thing that happened in, fill in the blank, unfortunately, mm-hmm. in, the, in whatever state, whatever incident. Um, And there was a person who did some very awful things and hurt a lot of other people. We can talk if you want about what happened or we can talk um, when you get home about what your friends are thinking about it. But I wanted you to know that you might hear some things and that you're safe here. We do a good job of keeping you safe and most other people in the world are 
good helpers and do their best to help in emergencies and to keep people, grown-ups and kids, safe in general. Do you think there's a difference um, between a violent act that happens, say, in your neighborhood down the street versus um, something awful that happens in another country or a state far away? Do, do kids process the geographic difference? distances or does that even matter? Well again depending on the age if you have a young child um, their concept of their world is pretty much where they live and they're where they go to school where their friends live so if you describe something that happened in another state or something that happened overseas they don't typically have the abstract um, ability or knowledge yet to say, oh, well, that is thousands of miles away from here or hundreds of miles away from here. But for older kids who do have that understanding, and certainly for adults, I think that one of the more typical reactions is that the further away it is, the more different um, the environment is, the easier it is for people to reassure themselves, justifiably or not, that, well, that was awful, but it didn't happen here. It happened someplace else. Um, I think that's getting a bit harder to do, unfortunately, um, particularly related to gun violence in this country, which is something that you hear about far more often in this country than in any of the other countries in the world. Um, I think when something happens within your community, there's also more of a shared sense um, of support from that community because people are more affected. This happened here. This happened nearby. Um, sometimes people know the affected people, and that can be both a source of a certain amount of anxiety, but also a source of great support because the community has shared feelings. You don't need to try to explain to somebody what happened because they're also aware, and that's a big difference than somebody dealing with individual or an, a family stress or tragedy. Thank you so much for your insights. My guest has been Upstate psychologist Dr. Wendy Gordon. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, what you need to know about Medicare. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Medicare is the government's health insurance plan for people age 65 and older, mostly, but also certain younger people with disabilities. It, it can be confusing. So we have here in the HealthLink studio, Myrna Colden. She's been the aging services specialist and the HICAP coordinator for the Onondaga County Department of Adult and Long-Term Care Services for more than 10 years. Thank you for being here, Myrna. My pleasure. The acronym HICAP, H-I-I-C-A-P, um, it stands for Health Insurance Information Counseling and Assistance. So what, what is that? HICAP is a statewide program that helps people on Medicare primarily with their health insurance questions, concerns, problems. Um, we provide free, confidential, unbiased assistance. We don't sell anything. We don't direct anybody to any plans. We provide them with the information so they can make a knowledgeable decision. So meant to be educational. So Absolutely. Great. Well, um, now I know there's Medicare Parts A, B, C, and D. Can you kind of give a summary of what each one is? Certainly. It is confusing for people. There are only two parts of Medicare that come from the federal government, and that's Medicare Parts A and B. Medicare Parts A covers inpatient hospital, and a post-hospital nursing home stay for rehab. Medicare Part B covers doctors, durable medical equipment, and lab tests. 
Medicare Part C, which is through private insurance companies, are Medicare Advantage plans that cover everything Medicare covers, but in a different cost structure. And they also may offer additional benefits such as hearing, vision, dental, or even membership in a fitness center. And membership in Medicare Part D covers drugs, that's prescription drugs that people would get at the pharmacy. So D is easy to remember, D for drugs, but the others you just have to sort of learn. I guess. And now, C and D would be different depending on what state you live in? That's correct. A and B would be the same no matter where you are. C and D, it can even vary from county. It oh. depends which plans contract into that county. Interesting. All right. Well, um, what sorts of questions do you hear from people most often? Where does, where does the confusion lie? The confusion lies with the fact that there are so many medis. There's Medicare, Medicaid, Medigap. Medicare Advantage. So people are very confused about their options. Uh, people also coming from a, a job, going into Medicare when they retire can be very confusing because there are so many options out there. All right. Well, you mentioned Medicaid, and I always try to remind myself the aid. Aid is for the, the needy, um, Medicaid. But we're talking about Medicare today. So within Medicare, there's a lot of options for people. What what how do you advise them? Well, it's interesting because everybody is different, so people need to do what they feel is best for themselves, not what's best for their spouse or their best friend or neighbor down the street. Um, some people want to stay with original Medicare um, and then get a Medicare Part D prescription drug plan. And if a person does not have what they call creditable prescription coverage and they don't get a Part D, they would be hit with a penalty somewhere down the road. Um, so that's one option. The other option is a Medicare Advantage plan, and many of those include drug coverage, and they're a package plan that would cover everything Medicare Part A covers, Part B covers, and the D also, as well as the extra advantage of those extra benefits. Now, you mentioned not doing this for, you know, what's good for your spouse and might not be good for you. So Medicare is individual. It's not for a, a couple. That's it's, true. It's not. There's no such thing as family coverage. Each individual has different needs, whether it be prescriptions or their health needs. So each individual has to decide for themselves what's best for them. Once you choose one plan, are you stuck with that one for life, or do you get a chance to change it every year? Every year between October 15th and December 7th is the general open enrollment period. It starts the first of the following year. But there are also a number of special enrollment periods that during the year we can assist people with switching to another plan if the plan they have does not work for them. Now, I've heard the term um, supplemental coverage. Is that the same thing as Medigap? Yes, a supplemental plan is a Medigap plan. It's through private insurance companies. It supplements Medicare Parts A and B, and it works with original Medicare. Um, it covers the Medicare A and B co-payments, um, that a person would have. So theoretically, they would have no bills from the hospital, no bills from the doctor. They tend to be costly. They average around $150 to $200 a month, but a person may find it beneficial for them. So a Medicare plan is not going to cover all of the health expenses that a person might have after age 65, right? That's true. Medicare Part A has a deductible, and this year it's $13.40 per benefit period, and a benefit period starts the day someone goes in the hospital and 60 days after they've left the hospital or skilled nursing. And that is a benefit period that can accumulate during the year. So if someone went in the hospital in January and went back in July, they would have another $1,340 deductible. Medicare Part B also has an annual deductible, and that deductible is $183. Once they meet their deductible, then Medicare pays 80%, and the patient pays 20%. So there's still going to be some, could be sizable expenses for someone. Um, and, and that's where the Medicap policies come into play? Or? And that's where a Medigap plan would assist people because they could pay those co-payments and deductibles for the individual. Gotcha. Now, does Medicaid, are, are people on Medicaid and Medicare ever? Yes, people can be on Medicare and Medicaid. They're called dual eligibles. And there are some Medicare Advantage plans that are set up specifically for people who are dual eligibles um, that coordinate with the Medicaid program very well. 
So it sounds like you already said individualized. I mean, this really does matter for an individual person to get some guidance in making their selection, it sounds like. Yes, it can get very complicated for people. All right. Well, um, now what's going on with the new Medicare cards? Up until now, the Medicare cards have had a Social Security number, usually the um, the persons, the beneficiaries, or it could be their spouses because it is the wage earners, with a suffix letter afterwards explaining who the re- what the relationship is. The new Medicare cards, which started coming out uh, the beginning of August of 2018 to people in New York State, have an 11-digit identifier uppercase letters and numbers, so it will no longer be tied to a Social Security number. So when the person gets the new card, they should notify their um, providers so that it gets billed correctly. Um, nobody will call them about their card. They should not give information on about their old Social Security number, Medicare claim number, and there's no charge for the card. It will come out automatically, and most people in New York State should have it by the end of September or so. And it'll just arrive in the mail? It will arrive in the mail, and again, they could destroy their old card and give the providers their new identifier. So is this um, generally sort of a security measure to take the Social Security number off of a card? Absolutely. For so many years, people have asked for that Social Security number to be removed from their card um, because if a wallet gets stolen, they would uh, set themselves up for identity theft by having the person's Social Security number address So this should be much safer. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Myrna Colden from the Onondaga County Department of Adult and Long-Term Care Services about Medicare. So I wanted to ask you if you have information that can help people save money on Medicare. There are a number of programs that can help people save money. The first that I want to mention is New York State EPIC. That's for people who are New York State residents, age 65 and over, who have a Medicare Part D plan. They do have an income limit, which is $75,000 for an individual and $100,000 for a married couple, and it can help reduce the prescription Part D premium as well as prescription costs. Uh, The second program is through Social Security Administration. It's called Extra Help Low Income Subsidy. Um, There's an income and resource limit, um, but it could help reduce the cost of the Part D premium as well as prescriptions. It can do away with the deductible on the Medicare Part D plan and also the coverage gap. Um, There's also a program through the Medicaid office called Medicare Savings Program where the state would pay the Medicare Part B premium so that 134 would not come out of somebody's um, Social Security uh, benefit and they get their full benefit. Um, And if somebody is eligible for that, they also get full extra help low income subsidy. The Medicare Savings Program is based on income alone, and we have information in our office on both those programs. Okay. All right. Now, also, is there a cost advantage if you choose one of these um, advantage plans? Instead of going with traditional Medicare, can you save money if you choose an HMO or a PPO plan? Actually, to get a Medicare Advantage plan, you still have to have a Medicare Part A and B. But you can save money because some of the plans are zero premium. So you're not paying anything extra for a Medicare Part D prescription drug plan. Plus, you might get those extra benefits of dental, vision, hearing, or membership in a fitness center. Um, People do have to be aware, though, if they have an HMO, a PPO, or what we call private fee-for-service plan, each plan may have its own restrictions. So you have to kind of read the fine print. You have to make sure that your doctors accept it, the labs you go to accept it, the area you live in. If you travel, that may affect it. So people have to be, again, very individualized. They have to know what their needs are, and we could assist them with that. So what about the drug coverage? I've, I've read that there may be some changes um, coming that might make that more expensive for people. Actually, um, they're doing away with the coverage gap. It was supposed to be gone in 2020. Now it's going to be gone in 2019, so that may save people some money. What's the coverage gap? There are four stages of a Medicare Part D plan. There's the deductible stage, the initial coverage, the coverage gap, which used to be called the donut hole, Mm -hmm. and catastrophic. And in each stage, a person pays a different amount for their prescriptions. And the coverage gap, when the Medicare Part D first came out, was quite substantial. And since 2010, it's been slowly reduced 
Um, it's a stage where people may pay a higher amount for their prescriptions. Initially, they didn't feel that many people would get into the coverage gaps. But we know the prescription costs have gone up, so more people tend to reach the gap stage. But with it being reduced, it should save people money. Good. That's good news. Well, how do you suggest people find assistance for help choosing Medicare coverage? Well, if you live in uh, Onondaga County, you could call Onondaga County Office for Aging. Uh, Our phone number is 315-435-2362, and my direct extension is 4944. We can assist. If you live in a different county, you could call your county's uh, Office for Aging Each county has a high-cap program that can assist people. You could also call Medicare directly, and Medicare can be of assistance to you as well. And their phone number is 1-800-633-4227. Social Security Administration is where you would sign up for your Medicare, and their phone number is 1-800-772-1213. And there's also the Medicare Rights Center, which has a consumer hotline. This is a um, not-for-profit that can assist people with their Medicare issues. And their number is 1-800-333-4114, and that's their consumer hotline. All right, and we'll make sure to include those on our website at uh, healthlinkonair.org as well. Now, how early should people begin? Um, Does everyone qualify on their 65th birthday? Is that how it works? People are eligible for Medicare when they turn 65. Generally, it's the first of the month they turn 65. Um, If they're still working, they may or may not need to sign up for Medicare. Um, I usually suggest they give me a call. We could talk about it, or they could talk to somebody in their HR department who may be able to advise them. But generally, for somebody going on to Medicare, Um, somebody retiring, we suggest that they call maybe three or four months ahead so they have time to review all their options. Okay, three or four months ahead if they're looking at that. Now, are there disabilities that may qualify someone for earlier coverage? If somebody is getting Social Security disability, no matter what their disability is, on their 25th month of receiving Social Security disability, they become eligible for Medicare and they'll get their Medicare card about three months prior to that. If they have ALS, um, Lou Gehrig's disease, they can get Medicare much sooner, and if they have uh, um, kidney problems, renal failure, uh, if they're going to have a kidney transplant, they can get Medicare earlier as well. Okay, good. Well, thank you so much for, this is a lot of information, very educational, I appreciate it. Uh, My guest has been Myrna Colden from the Onondaga County Department of Adult and Long-Term Care Services. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. When medical students start their third year, they step onto the floors of the hospital to begin their rotations through various departments and specialties. They take their intense book learning from the first two years and try to apply this knowledge to the patients they will meet under the careful eyes of their attendings and residents. But the question they have, can they care for patients even when there is no cure for them? Alyssa Anderson, a fourth-year medical student, describes one of her first experiences in her essay, Finding Our Routine. I would like to read a short excerpt. You are my first admission on my medicine rotation. I walk into the room and notice how small you look under your giant fluffy hat. You are strong, stoic, and a little defensive when we first meet. You are determined to get the fluid drained from your abdomen, control your pain, and get home. You are slightly annoyed, but mostly patient, as I fumble through the interview, asking questions about and tracing the ups and downs of your year. The past year has been mostly downs. You are frustrated as you express just how difficult the past few weeks have been. You are drained as you realize you haven't eaten in days, That's the first time I see your tears. You are 53, with ovarian and breast cancer, 
both diagnosed last winter. Since then, you've done rounds of chemotherapy, had a surgery that took too long to heal, and tried more chemotherapy. You're a professor at a local college. You enjoy teaching psychology and philosophy. You've maintained two classes throughout your illness, and you feel guilty that you had to meet, miss last week's. You have two sons that live with you. They are your pride. They know you're sick, but you haven't told them how serious your illness is, and you suspect that they're unaware. You were healthy and active before the diagnosis, and you can't understand how this happened to you. Just last week, you started a new chemotherapy drug, and since then, you've been so nauseous that you can't eat without vomiting. The interventional radiologist says there is nothing they can do to make you more comfortable. The attending leaves the room, and you just look at me with despair. I am supposed to be continuing on rounds, but I quickly decide that being here with you in this moment is more important. After much prodding, we convince the radiologist to try to drain something from your abdomen for your comfort. They pull out two liters of fluid. You barely feel the difference. You're feeling the weight of the situation, and I'm offering the only things I can think of to distract both of us. Can I get you more water, more pain meds, more pillows? The distraction doesn't work. I don't offer the thing that we both know you need, but no one can give you. Even unspoken, the reality of your situation hangs like an ugly intruder in the room, and the atmosphere is solemn when I leave for the night. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, gene editing with a tool called CRISPR. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.